Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Hello and welcome to a new season of TV Show and Tell, the podcast about the whys and wherefores of the television industry. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggie, and I'm known internationally as the Format Doctor. And we're back, bustling with more news, views and interviews about what's going on in the world of telly. Our guest today is James Harkin, the Director of Research for the hit BBC panel game QI, and one of the stars of the worldwide hit podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish. But first, Justin is raring to go with his news snippets. So what have you got for us? So I have two formats that have come up recently, not in the UK, but one in the ABC in the USA, one at ProSieben in Germany. They're both feature Z-list slebs. I love this new word, slebs. Have you come across this? S-L-E-B? I'm not sure it's quite in the Oxford English Dictionary <laughs> yet, but yeah. i found it being used more and more and more, and I just think it's kind of perfect because it's not quite celebs, it's slebs. So we're used to Z-list slebs who are only famous for being famous. So this show claimed to fame in, in the States. We now have Z-list slebs who's who are only famous for being related to someone who's famous. Right. So the idea is they've taken a bunch of these Z-list celebs, celebs, who are each related to a celebrity, and they've locked them up in a house, which apparently, according to The Guardian, is Katy Perry's old house in Hollywood. And they set them various humiliating tasks, which are vaguely designed to give them clues as to each other's famous relatives. So the game is that they've got to try and figure out who the others are related to. Right. And it's hosted by Kevin Jonas of the Jonas Brothers and his lesser known brother, Frankie, who's not one of the Jonas Brothers because actually he is a Jonas Brother, but he's not one of the Jonas Brothers. And it's consequently sometimes known as the Bonus Jonas. (laughs) Okay. okay, so I hope he, ha- hope he has that on his driving license. Like, you know, <laughs> surname right. Jonas, first name Bonus. <laughs> it reminds me, I think there is a, is it ITV or Channel 4? There's a sort of like a dining format at the minute where there is somebody who is a celebrity and they come and they, they eat with four guests and they have to guess the celebrity has to guess which of the people that they're eating with they are related to in some weird way. So, you know, this sort of thing of being related to celebrities is catching on. So on Proceeded in Germany, rather surprisingly, actually, is an incredibly trashy show, which roughly translates as the great celebrity penance. Atonement. <laughs> Doesn't strike me as the most Catholic of countries, does Germany, mm. you have to say. So you've got 11 Z-lists, reality stars, influencers, sports celebs, that kind of thing. And they all live together in a camp in the Austrian mountains. And there are the usual round of challenges and eliminations and mud fights and jumping out of helicopters and this, that and the other. But at the centre of this is the shame round. So the shame (laughs) round is basically taking those late night drunken confession sessions that you get in other uh, house-based reality shows. But this time, the celebs 
are called to the confessional, and they have to confess their sins to Travestikunstler, i.e. German drag queen, Olivia Jones. So she does this kind of confession session with each of them, and then gives them a penance. So, so far, most of their sins, staying in this world of meta that we are, most of their sins relate to things they've done wrong on other reality shows. So, for example, one of the contestants was challenged about the way he treated women when he was on Temptation Island. Right. And is sort of forced to confess how badly he behaved. And his penance was to do the laundry for the women in the camp. So a show that I'm eagerly anticipating, I've seen the trailer of, I've read quite a lot about, but I haven't seen yet, is called The Rehearsal. So The Rehearsal is on HBO Max, and from what I've seen, I think it'd be worth a subscription to see it. It features a Canadian comedian called Nathan Fielder, who's hard to describe. He's a, he's a cross between, I suppose, Sasha Baron Cohen and Woody Allen. He's like a very anxious Sasha Baron Cohen. And the idea of this, it's a a docu-reality show. So the idea is that he helps people who are anxious about some big, important life event that's coming up. Hmm. Maybe they're going to confess something serious to a close friend, or they're going to tell their new partner that they don't want to have a baby or whatever. And he helps them to practice living it out. So he rehearses the event. And he stages these perfect rehearsals by coming up with possible scenarios, but in ridiculous detail. So he will obsessively think of everything that might possibly happen. And then he'll hire entire buildings, armies of actors, and completely immerse the subjects in the kind of endless what-if scenarios in order to test for them, you know, how they might react to different outcomes. Mm. However... There's another level to this because Nathan, as I said, is <laughs> has all his own sets of anxieties as well. So he's very worried about how every rehearsal is going to go. So he basically then rehearses his rehearsals. <laughs> okay. So it gets extremely, extremely layered. So in the in the teaser, he's sitting down with with this guy who who he's going to be working with. It's their first chat, and they're talking about well, you know what his problem is and what how they might deal with it. And then he says to the guy, "So I think this chat's going quite well, don't you?" <laughs> and the guy says, "Well, yeah, yeah, I suppose it is." And, he's, and he says, "Well, that's because I've rehearsed the chat <laughs> countless times." And he reveals that not only has he rehearsed it, but he's hired a, a doppelganger and he's built a perfect replica of the guy's apartment (laughs) in order to rehearse talking to him about his rehearsal and so it goes on so things just get more and more and more extreme as it goes it just sounds amazing and 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 a really really kind of fresh take on the whole thing so i'm really looking forward to seeing that it sounds like an ideal format for john richardson Mm, yes you're right actually the british comedian who's known for sort of having that kind of outlook but He's so busy making programs with his wife and now his mother-in-law, and presumably he's going to be working all the way through <laughs> his family tree that uh, he won't have time to do that show. The career path from accountant to playing guitar at the Hammersmith Apollo might not seem like an obvious one, but it's one that's formed the life experiences of our special guest today, James Harkin. James Harkin. 
Now, you may or may not believe that Santa Claus exists, but I can tell you that elves definitely exist, because it's the name of the people that help behind the scenes creating the questions for the BBC panel show QI. We have with us today the head elf, or main script editor, director of research for QI. He's been working on the show for 18 years, he's written 13 books, and he's also part of the team that is behind the hit podcast No Such Thing as a Fish, which has had 400 million listens. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show, James Harkin. Hello, James. Hi, David. Hi, Justin. Hi, James. Now, you have one, I think, of the most remarkable career arcs. So I'm going to sort of take you all the way back to the start of that arc, if I may. So if I understand, you were working as an accountant, I believe. I was. And the one thing I'd say to start off with is that arcs often go back down to where they started from. So hopefully I'm near the top of the arc. <laughs> or hopefully I'm on the way up towards the top of the arc. Um, but yeah, I was working as an accountant in Eccles near Manchester. Uh, and it was not a very glamorous job, I would say. Um, we worked in porter cabins in a car park. Uh, we had no real heating. We had to kind of, I would turn up, I had to start early in the morning to beat the traffic so i'd arrive like an hour early and i'd have to sit in my car with my heating on because we couldn't really go into the pot cabins because they were so cold and i was just like i was really into gogol and kafka there and i'd just be sat in the car with like my window steamed up in a car park in a dodgy bit of manchester sort of reading my Russian literature. This literally sounds like that Monty Python sketch where there's a guy, hey, you had it tough. We, we, didn't have, we, we, we didn't even have a car. I know. I lived in shoebox at the bottom of the lake. It was, I mean, it was something like that. For instance, like it was a pub company, right? So we had all these different pubs that we ran and they had to ring me up whenever they wanted to change the till. And someone ran me up one day and they said, oh, I'd like to you to put some Oldham Rosé on our till. And I was like, oh, because I knew what they'd ordered and they hadn't ordered any rosé. And I'm like, well, you're not really supposed to order from the cash and carry. So I'll do it this time. But really, if you want some rosé, you should come to us. And they went, no, 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 not rosé, Oldham rosé. It's half a pint of red wine and half a pint of white wine. <laughs> <laughs> Classy. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's the kind of place I worked. And, um, I was an accountant and anyone who is an accountant or has worked in accountancy knows that the way it works is it's the same every single month. And so you kind of get to month end and you start again. And the work that I was doing was really not that difficult. And I was asking for more and they didn't really have any extra work to give me. So I had lots of spare time. And my uncle, um, Eugene, who actually sadly passed away very, very recently, uh, he told me about this show called QI that I hadn't seen or even heard of, but more importantly, that they had an online section where you could kind of send in facts. And at the time, I was in a quiz team with Jenny Ryan, who is now the vixen on the chase. I was really into quizzes and stuff, and we were, we were really into that, doing loads of pub quizzes. And he just thought that I'd be interested in it. So I started sending them loads of facts. And in all my spare time at work, no one could see my computer because I had a wall behind me, so they didn't know what I was doing. So I could just spend the whole time just looking for facts on the internet. And then um, I sent them loads of stuff, and they started using it on the show. And uh, probably after about a year, my um, my boss sort of called me into the office and said, we've looked at your computer usage and really you're the second biggest user of the computers in the company. 
uh, and you're quite about to catch up to the most, the biggest user of the computers. I'm like, well, who is that? And they said, well, it's our entire email system. <laughs> and I was using basically all day, just reading loads and loads of stuff off the internet and using up all this memory. Cause it's back in the day, you know, when it, this kind of thing was limited. And um, I said to them, it was 2005, and I said, oh, I was watching the cricket, because you remember there was that amazing Ashes in 2005. Mm. And I said, oh, I was streaming the cricket, and that's what was happening. But really, it meant that I had to really back off. And I, I told QI, I'm like, look, I really have to, you know, I have to really do my actual job that I get paid for now. And they said, well, how are you fancy jacking it in and coming and working for QI? And I didn't want to, because I had a mortgage, and... You know, I I couldn't really afford to go into showbiz. Oh, but television is such a well-paid, respected industry, James. <laughs> well, you know what? Like, to people in Bolton, you think it is, right? You think everyone who works in TV is a millionaire. But, of course, we know that it's very seasonal. You you know, you might get a bit of money for some time, but then there's a lot of time where you don't have anything to do. And so um, I said to QI that I would only do it if I could do the TV show for three months a year and I could do their accounts for the rest of the year. And so to start off with, I was QI's accountant as well as their one of their researchers. And then eventually the research kind of took over and, and now I'm the head of the research team. So, like, so you get involved with the show, and like, how did people train you up to sort of look for the sort of facts that they were looking for? Like what what sort of did they say is a good fact, and what what to avoid? Well, to be honest, we didn't really have much training in those days because the TV show had we'd had one series, and we didn't really know what it was. It was just invented by John Lloyd and John Mitchinson in a pub in Oxford. And it wasn't even a TV show, to be honest. They wanted to make a, a series of uh, books, like um, encyclopedias, but with only the interesting parts. Uh, and they went to the um, to Faber, the publishers, and said, what do you think of this? And they were kind of thinking about it. And then John happened to push it to someone um, in one of his friends in TV. And they said, well, we'll give you a series or a pilot. And then suddenly... It became from what was going to be the book. And I think John still deep down would love to write that book one day, that kind of massive encyclopedia of everything interesting. But it became a TV show. And so really no one knew what they were doing. And to, before I got there, it was just a couple of um, young girls who'd come out of university, Molly Oldfield and Sophie, um, who forgive me, whose surname I've forgotten, uh, who would just sit in a... You know, um, when the government kind of has these little offices that they give to startups, they were in one of those offices and they were just reading through Encyclopedia Britannica and being told anything you find interesting, just write down hmm. and we'll make a show out of it. And in those days, that was about as much training as we had. You learned because whatever worked. And in a way, even after 18 years, that's kind of still how it works. <laughs> On QI, and I'm, I'm sure other people who work in TV are the same, it's like you never really know why things work. Sometimes you write a joke or a question or whatever, and you think this is exactly as good as the thing I wrote last week, uh, but it doesn't fly at all. And then something that you kind of just write on the off chance because you're trying to fill up a few, a bit of a word count will suddenly go off and be a, a bit of comedy on TV that people watch for years and years and years. So, yeah. Because there is another version of this show that could have potentially happened, which is they could have brought in like 15 comedy writers who try and sort of reverse engineer a joke and then sort of try and find a fact to loosely associate with that. Is there anything of that or do you just mainly lead on the facts and hope that something funny happens at the end of it? Well, I think uh, certainly in the purest sense of QI, we would lead with the facts for sure. 
Uh, I would probably argue in the last maybe five to ten years since some of us have become more performers, we probably have a slightly better ear for what comedians like to talk about and what it's easier to make jokes about and stuff like that. Uh, whether that's improved the show or disimproved the show, I don't know. Um, but I would say probably more recently we do look at that kind of thing. When you came into QI, was the formula fixed by then uh, with Stephen hosting and, and Alan as the sidekick? And, and so, yeah. So I think, I, I believe that right at the very beginning, you know, it had a slightly different kind of lineup. It did at the very start, and this was before I started, um, but the, mm-hmm. to begin with, it was John's idea was you would have the Thicko's team and the Smart People's team, ah, right. uh, and you would have Stephen as the head of the of the educated team and Alan as the, you know, working class lad from North London team. Uh, and John's idea, I think, would be, having known many comedians and myself knowing many comedians as well is that really these comedians are super smart and probably they would have the last laugh most weeks. Um, Mm. But then it was supposed to be hosted by Michael Palin and um, Michael, I think had cold feet at the last second. Uh, This is a secondary story because I wasn't there at the time, but I believe this is what happened that uh, Michael decided he couldn't do it. And um, at the last second, Stephen jumped in. And that's why, unlike every other panel show, we only have one regular because it was supposed to be a, a captain and two regulars, but we lost our captain. I see. Uh, I have to say, it broke my brain, that sort of concept <laughs> of like having a, a very asynchronous setup of like just one person in one corner being like the, the regular and then all the other three move around him. It's sort of yeah. like, I, I, would, I would never even think to do that. Well, it doesn't make any sense, does it, really? <laughs> I mean, we all like a bit of symmetry, don't we? It's, it's very, very strange to just have one person there every week. But for some reason, it, it really does help to have at least one person who knows the game, who understands it, who, if everyone else is, you know, if we get three people who, for one reason or another, don't really understand what we're going for, Alan always knows. He he always can sense the direction we were hoping him to go in and and... You know, unless he thinks of something better, which he does most of the time, he he'll be able to steer us in that direction. I suppose a parallel to it is Paul Burton on Just a Minute. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, he, again eased into that role with, with Nicholas, where he was basically certainly in the later years with with Nick, Nicholas Parsons was was always on the show, and was that again that kind of anchor person who knew the game, knew the rules, was very good at playing it, and was a kind of reliable. Uh, foil yeah and i'd argue probably that the audience needs that kind of that kind of reliable face that they know no matter what happens that alan's going to be there and and Mm. that Mm. you know this is the alan davis and sandy toxvig show or previously the alan davis and stephen fry show and um the other stuff that happens is different every week but at least there's a kind of a a reliable thing that you're going to get every single week so do you have any kind of um, structure to how you research things? Do you just sort of just basically read and read and read and read? Or do you have any particular favorite sources that you sort of think you get more out of than others? Or Yeah, on QI, I have um, an RSS feed, which is every interesting website that I've ever found um, that does regular updates. I put on my RSS feed, and that means that every day I get around 
probably about between 500 and 1,000 web pages that come up on that. Wow. And I um, don't read every single one, but <laughs> I skim through them all to see what's interesting, and then I highlight what's interesting. And then when we come to the research um, for the TV show, I go back to those um to everything that I've highlighted and, and see what actually is good compared to what actually I thought was good six months earlier. Uh, but then on top of that, of course, we, you know, we're reading, um, I probably read around a hundred books a year. I would say probably something like that a couple of week. And again, when I say read, it's very much skimming. <laughs> I find it really hard to read um, like fiction because I could start off okay. And then before I know it, I've read 70 pages and I don't remember anything that I've said that I've read because <laughs> I'm just kind of skimming, skimming, skimming. And um, yeah, there's a lot of that. And then the other thing is we like to find experts and go to exhibitions and, and all that kind of thing. And the, we've got a group of the elves, I would say, probably around 10 who, who are there, 10 to 12 of us. And we all have different ways of finding things. So um, some of them are much more likely to go to museums and exhibitions and, and stuff. And some of us are much more at home, just sat with our eyes glued to a laptop. So what's the most extreme thing you've done to sort of find a fact or find whether a fact is true? Uh, good question. The first thing that comes into my head is for the H series of QI, I went round the world, which I suppose is quite extreme. Mm. Um, that was basically, I just split up with my girlfriend and needed to get out of the country and QI sort of saw an opportunity and said, why don't you take a camera with you and, and do some research and stuff like that. So, uh, I went round the world to all the places beginning with H that I could think of. Um, so I went to Hungary and I was going to go to Honduras, but there was a civil war just before I set off. So I couldn't go there. Uh, but you know, like, um, Haiti and, uh, where else? Like the Himalayas and stuff. Hull. And that was really, Hull, yeah. <laughs> well, you know what, David, I think maybe my Atlas just only had the exciting places in it. <laughs> Not that Hull isn't exciting, of course. I love Hull, but. Having, having been born in Hull, I didn't know that Hull began with an H. <laughs> I thought it was. I thought it was just all. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I really like I really like that area, like Beverly and around there. I love it. Um, so that was pretty extreme, I would say. Uh, what else? I remember one of the first facts that I ever got on the show um, was about a place that we said on QI was called Torpenhow, which was a hill in the Lake District. And the interesting thing about that is that Torpen and how all mean hill in different languages or different dialects. And so Torpen How Hill was hill, 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 hill. So we wrote about that, and then we got a reply the next week, uh, the next year of someone saying, well, I live around there, and I don't think there is a Torpen How Hill. And so I went to Torpen How Hill, and I went to the place where Wikipedia says it was, uh, asked some locals. Apparently, it turned out we pronounced it wrong as well. It's pronounced Trepenna. <laughs> not Torpenhow. Uh, and I went into a farmer's field to the place where Wikipedia said was the exact top of this hill. And there was literally nothing. None of the locals could tell me what the hill was called. And then I got chased out of there by some cows. <laughs> and <laughs> the reason that kind of sticks into my head is because I'm really scared of cows. I think they're kind of dead behind the eyes. And like, I really, I, I did used to live in the countryside, but I don't like being in a field with cows. And so it really kind of stuck with me. And you know what? When I went around the world, I was in Hungary and I got 
had to stop a fight between a Finnish bodybuilder and a Hungarian guy who used to um, work for the IRA. And I was more scared. I mean, that, that is a long story, but the, I was more scared with the cows than I was with that. You must have a lot of situations where you have a beautiful fact. And then when you actually dig down into the research of it, it like it, everything just turns to ash in your hands. You, I think we've all, we've uh, all yeah. been there. Yeah. There is like a sort of like a kind of like a one that got away kind of fact where you sort of thought, oh, well, that was a nice fact, but unfortunately it's not actually quite true. Um, oh gosh. I mean, there's so many facts that we say that are not quite right. So for instance, um, here's one from this week, um, which was that we did this on the podcast. So the only railway that was built in Greenland was to transport a meteorite. Uh, and this is a fact about Robert Peary, who you probably both know, who was, um, according to some people, the first pe- person to reach the North Pole, uh, according to most people, wasn't. Um, but he did um, find this massive meteorite that the local indigenous people had been using to make iron cutlery and, and weapons and things like that. Uh, and he um, took it slash stole it to put into a museum uh, in america uh, and they had to build a railway and so it's a nice little story um but then i looked into it and as you can imagine on the internet lots of people have listed all of the railways that have ever been made in greenland <laughs> and there have been another i think half a dozen uh, railways in greenland and so um we couldn't use the fact exactly as worded we had to change it slightly another one was about the brontes who um lived in Howarth in Yorkshire and there is a theory that they might have died young because there was a graveyard at the top of the hill in Howarth and the water supply in the town was at the bottom of the hill and the thought is that perhaps the water seeped through the graveyard and polluted the water supply and it is definitely true that there was a very low um life expectancy in Howarth mm. in the mid 19th century uh, but then I thought a bit about it and thought well let's have a look at the actual map of it and i found a topological map of the area and it turned out that the parsonage which did have a well was actually slightly higher than the graveyard uh. so unless there was unless there was something else going on it couldn't be the fact and then i found that the year before three of the brontes died um, it was, I went on the Met Office website and they have historical records. And I found out that August was one of the wettest months in the previous 20 years. And so it's plausible that there might have been some flooding and it might have leached back into the, into the well. Ah. So uh, anyway, what am I talking about? This is just, <laughs> this is an example of kind of where we go with all of our research. You just always, you're basically always trying to disprove stuff, really. Always down the rabbit hole. Yeah. So when, um, when you have, somebody who joins the team mm. new um and they're all bright and chirpy or whatever do you, do you all sit around in a pub going done it done it done it i suppose first of all like the way that i came into qi is these days not the typical way that we get people into qi um we do get young very keen researchers we use um a thing called creative access which brings in uh, people who are from less represented groups in the uk and sometimes we go through them sometimes we go through an open uh interview thing but basically we're getting all these new young people in and as you definitely rightly say they will come in with their facts that they found and almost all of them we will have done 
almost every time. And it can be really disheartening because you just mm. have a meeting, not in the pub, in the QI office, where uh, people come in with this amazing fact that they found and they just have me, the old sort of crone in the corner, just going, <laughs> Series C, Episode 6, Series E, Episode 1. Just like, this is when we did that. Or mm. sometimes it's worse, which is... We haven't done that, but we haven't done it because we know it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the truth and what we always say is that if they are finding those things, it means they're finding the right stuff because um, if we've used it before, it meant that we thought it was good enough the last time. There is a sort of a, th- a thing where like, I'm sure in the old days of, let's say, mastermind in the 70s, a basic question like, how many wives did Henry VIII have? Six, correct. Yeah. Would have would have flown through verification without any problem whatsoever. And I, in a way, QI has created this sort of fear, uncertainty, and doubt in quizzing because, like, no sort of fact is seems sort of safe anymore. Like, even that now it's like the answer mm. I believe is like two, three, or four, depending on what you believe in, in, yeah, in terms yeah. of the technicalities of um, of um, annulled marriages, etc. So. I suppose in a way you could say you've improved the standard of the research that quizzes have to go through generally, but it also means that everyone's quite nervous about even the most basic effect in case the the blue whale noise gets set off. (laughs) Well, on QI, that's definitely, they're a bit nervous, but I always say on QI to the new people when they come, it's like, you really want to get that klaxon. If you're a comedian and you're coming on TV because you want some airtime and people to see how funny you are and people to see your face and recognize you, this is a guaranteed way to be on the screen for you know, 10 seconds going, oh, what an idiot I am kind of thing, <laughs> when actually what you're saying is what the person at home was thinking. So the the true way of playing the game is to hit those klaxons as much as possible. And the at the end, we give the scores, which, by the way, are real scores. We have a scorer who works on real quizzes like the chase and whatever. Um, but those scores, really, the winner is the person with the lowest score because they've played the game best. And on the, on the idea of us proving things wrong i think you're particularly interested in this david because i've i've actually seen some of your work where you you kind of show the problems that quiz writers can get into and and mistakes that can be made and and you know word um questions that can be worded in a way which aren't quite on the money and and you can get in trouble it's like there's a thing that i'm well known for on our podcast which is that i really um care that a panini should be a plural and panino should be singular but that's just a joke i mean it's not it's i don't really <laughs> believe that i think everyone should be able to say whatever they want to say and as long as the person who you're saying it to understands what your meaning is then that's fine but that doesn't stop me from probably on a weekly basis getting a photo of a panino shop from somewhere <laughs> somewhere in milan or something saying hey these guys agree with you james um so i think I'm, as with quiz shows obviously it's really important especially when there's money involved you you have to be really unimpeachable but as far as the qi klaxon goes it's just a bit of fun really we're not we're not trying to prescribe and say this is what everyone should think I've seen a QI script, and what I thought I was going to see when I saw it was nine klaxon possibilities for each every each every single thing. And actually, over the entire show, you might have as few as five. Yeah, that's true. I'm quite surprised first how few there are, but also therefore 
how easy they must seem to hit because they do obviously hit them. Yeah, well, that's part of the fun of our side of the game is to try and predict what they're going to say. Um, for instance, like um, Jimmy Carr uses this uh, joke of reverse cowgirl um, for any kind of, you know, like what position does Michael Owen play in reverse cowgirl, you know, whatever, you know, he's always going to make that joke. So we've noticed him make it a few times on QI. So we're like, oh, we'll load that up for you. Uh, but the reason that there was never that many actually was a technical one. And that was because the software that we used meant that you could only load in a certain number of klaxons. We couldn't just type it up on the day and, and, and do it. I mean, we could fix it in post, but you're never going to get the right reactions or whatever. So mm. we could only really do a certain number for each question. These days, actually, Alex Bell, who's one of my colleagues, uh, who is one of the, he works a lot more in the production side of QI than I do, uh, but he's come up with a new, you know, you would think, why did they not do this at the start? But basically, it's just like an iPad with a load of actual words on where he can put in many more klaxons than he used to. And uh, we still don't really use it that much, but he means he can put things in like, yes, no, sorry. You know, and he can sometimes have a little conversation with the panelist if if they disagree with his <laughs> klaxoning, which we try and use sparingly because we think it might get a bit annoying. But uh, when it works, I think it really does work well. And do stick around because there's more from James later in the show. But first, we have some unfinished business from our previous season regarding our series on how to pitch. So to complete the story, we're going to cover what happens after the pitch is complete. So Justin, tell us what happens next. Well, there are basically four ways that a deal can end. So the first one is, yes, they love the pitch. They want the show. It's not actually that likely that that happens, but it, but it can do. If that does happen, then what you want to try and get is as clear as possible a verbal commitment. So you say something like, I'm so glad we're going to make this show together Da, 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 and ask them for a very short heads of agreement. So don't wait for some con long, long contract from legal. Get something that is just a, a letter which formalizes that you're going to go ahead and are going to sign our heads of, heads of agreement later on. In blood, preferably. In blood, yes, in their blood. A, a really good piece of advice I remember being given by David Lyle was don't sell past sold. So don't sell past sold means once they've said yes, you need to get out of the room as fast as you possibly can. Because <laughs> if you keep talking, if you keep saying, keep effectively selling the show, the danger is you'll trip over something they don't like. Right. There's a commissioning editor at the CBC in Canada who shall remain nameless, but she had a particular mannerism, which was she'd say yes, at least to a development money or a pilot or something like that. And then somewhere in the next five or 10 minutes, there'd be a kicker. There'd be a, be a kind of, obviously we can't do that till 2023, <laughs> you know, or, you know, as long as you get Elvis to present it. So I learned with her that the moment she said yes, I literally started packing my briefcase and heading for the door because I knew, <laughs> I knew otherwise there's going to be something that would just puncture the balloon. So basically, shut up and leave is the, is the first thing. So if you don't get a yes, what's more common is to get a yes, but I've got to sell up. Mm -hmm. So you, you know what sell up is. Yeah, by pitching to your boss's boss, basically. Essentially, that's right. And also people want to share it with their development team, which I think 
I'm never quite sure that's a euphemism or not really. But anyway, if they do give you a kind of qualified yes, then first of all, don't look disappointed. All right. You've got to be as enthusiastic and pleased as if they just handed you a wad of cash. And then ask them what they need to sell up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because what they're going to do is not what you did. They haven't got your sales material. They haven't rehearsed it. They're probably going to chuck somebody a piece of paper and say, what do you think of this? I quite liked it. What do you think? Or they're going to give an elevator pitch. So in an ideal world, you intervene and you actually provide them with the materials they need for them to sell up and find out when that's likely to be as well. Number three is a maybe. Now, a maybe isn't a no. A maybe can be converted into a yes. So if you've been actively listening, you should have picked up by now what's worrying them. If you don't know what's worrying them, ask. Find out literally how do I turn a maybe into a yes? You know, what do I need to convince you? It's fine. It's a, it's a sales. It's a commercial conversation. And you're allowed to do that and offer to come back and make a time to come back with your revised proposal. Mm -hmm. Okay. A no, on the other hand, means no. Okay. You cannot turn a no into a yes. So don't try. Um, and as I said, I think in our last session, just remember that the, the most likely outcome is no. And if it's going to be a no, then your job is to be, is to prepare the ground for coming back with another idea. Okay. So how you take rejection in the room is really critical because the reasons for no are very rarely that it was a crap idea. It's far more likely that they've got something a bit like it in development. They don't need this at the moment. They haven't got a slot for it. They can't afford it. There's a whole host of reasons going through their heads why, why they, why they have to say no to it. And it's not necessarily, in fact, it's very rarely as a reflection on your ability. I think when members of the public try and pitch something, sometimes I think they don't quite understand enough about the TV industry to even process what a no means. For example, like somebody might go, well, you know, it's a good idea, but unfortunately you don't have access to the people that you want to make the program about, or it's going to be too expensive. And then the natural thing is just to get really defensive about it and go, well, actually, I think we, you know, we can make it really cheaply. We could, you know, yeah. we could do it ourselves on, on home video cameras and, yeah. and people will pay us to make the program uh, for them. You know, the people will always want to be on TV. And, and usually there's extraordinarily good reasons why they've given you the feedback that they have. And, and you've yeah. got to sort of just swallow it up and yeah. accept that they know more about their industry than you do. Yeah. And, you know, again, if you, if you're in the right relationship with the commissioning editor, you can find out why. You know, it's it's often not a secret, but they spend most of their lives saying that's one of the reasons I don't really want to be a commissioning editor is I don't want to spend the majority of my day saying saying no to people. And you can ask for if you know they might just give a brief bit of feedback, but you can ask for a slightly more elevated, detailed piece of feedback if it's something you put a lot of work into, hmm. something that I know couple of projects I've been attached to have done in the past. Now, sometimes that can be a bit of a box ticking exercise and you, and you sort of go, actually, the reasons that they put down are completely wrong because they've completely misremembered certain things and the steps. But nevertheless, it sort of it at least gives you perhaps um, a sticking plaster to, to be able to put over your wounds and go, well, we tried our best and that's the reasons that they've given. Yeah. And remember, this isn't the only person you're going to pitch it to. And different pitches 
go better and go worse. So just because you had a bad pitch doesn't mean the next pitch is going to be a bad pitch. There's a tendency to immediately blame the show or blame the idea or blame the commissioning editor. Um, one of the interesting things about going to markets is that sometimes you'll pitch the same show, you know, seven or eight times in a day. And you have, you know, you sit there thinking, I had completely different reactions to this. You know, one person looked bored. One person looked annoyed. One person just said, this is the best thing I've ever seen sign here. And it's the same show with the same pitch. And you think, how is this possible? So I think the feedback from the commissioning editor feeds really neatly into what is the first thing you do outside the door? And I think it's really, really important that you debrief with the team, debrief with the people who are in the room. Because if you leave it, even three or four hours you start to create a narrative. You start to invent what happened. And also in that room, you all felt and heard different things. You all picked up on different things. So it's really important that you you go and have a coffee or a beer or whatever it is. And before you reframe the experience, you actually just write down or discuss your, your impressions of what happened. Because that's you know, that's what you'll use not only for the next pitch, but also, you know, if you go back to the same person. I think there's also a step in between that, actually, between mm-hmm. the sort of closing the door handle and going to cry in your cappuccino, <laughs> which is I'm going to steal an idea from Chris Curlier, one of our previous guests, mm. who, who's mentioned in the past that he has a 10 second rule, which is that nobody in your team discusses what's happened until you're 10 seconds away from the front door of the building. Mm, good because We've all heard of situations where someone's sort of overheard people like moaning about, oh, did they, they didn't understand that, did they? They didn't get it, whatever. And really, really shouldn't be slagging off people <laughs> working in that building. No, no. I remember coming out of a meeting and the people waiting outside were uh, waiting to go and pitch with uh, Freddie Starr. <laughs> and that dates you. <laughs> it does date me, yes. But I remember sort of thinking, Okay, we haven't got this one. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just, let's just get the taxi home and just go and make something else. Did Freddie Starr get it though? He, he did. He did. Oh, right. Yeah. No, I mean, the show was made. It was a car crash, but it was made. Yeah. (laughs) Um, okay. So another thing to say is about, about leave behind. So what have you left behind at this point? So uh, if you've come in, you know, with a pitch, then quite often they'd like you to leave the pitch behind. I would be careful of that. If you can avoid it, say that you'll send it on rather than leave your document behind. And the reason for that is that you have actually learned things in the course of the pitch. Mm. You probably need to adapt your ideas slightly. As I think I've said before, I'm a big believer in feeding back to people the words they used. Um, so again, if you've taken notes in the meeting or if you're very quick with your debrief, you can actually, you know, jot down words and phrases and, and the things that, again, that they got excited about and big those up in the document. So I mean, don't wait more than, you know, 48 hours, but I would say leave with your materials and send slightly adapted materials back. It also just means actually you've created another point of contact after the meeting. And so you, you know, you're now in dialogue after it. So that's about it, really. I think, you know, th- those are the main things. As you say, you know, you can get very disappointed you can get very defensive about these things i mean our business is a business of rejection most of the time like like anybody pitching a book or a movie or or so on uh, and the answer is a, is an odd mixture of having confidence in your idea and the humility to listen to what people say 
And as you've said before, it's also a matter of timing as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm just signing a development deal with a production company on a show that I made up in 1996. But because I keep everything, I've, I've got the original pitch document from 1996, which, you know, one day at the Oscars I will uh, produce. But yeah, I mean, it is quite tough. It's, you know, 20, you know, 25 years ago, more than 25 years ago. And that's like a typewritten document with Tipex all over it and pretty blue pencil. much. Yeah. I mean, the illustrations are drawn by me. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's very badly photocopied. But, um, but the core idea is, is the same. It's just, you know, I, I, I've kept it in a drawer. I've kept it on a list and the right moment came up. Someone was looking for a family show and I just blurted it out and boom. So there you go. It's not signed and sealed, but it is at least, you know, it is now in development with a, with a big production company. So there you go, folks. All you have to do is um, be patient, wait 25 years and you <laughs> might get a yes. <laughs> Now it's time to return to our interview with James Harkin, and we discuss James's experience of turning his podcasting work back into a TV show. Okay, so we've we've gone from accountant to working on QI, and then so as as part of the, the QI office is, is coming up with new ideas for things. Someone somewhere comes up with the idea for your podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish. So, like, how how did that start? And, like, how did you decide, like, which of you would get involved with it? Um, well, there was an idea of doing a QI podcast from quite a long time because we have a QI forum where we put all of our facts. And it's kind of a little bit of a nerdy community uh, as well. And it's, it's probably one of the oldest looking bits of the Internet. But there's a really nice community there. <laughs> and they're all quite nerdy people. Um, and they all were quite in on the podcast idea really on ground zero and so really quite for quite a long time people were saying you should do your own podcast you should do your own podcast and we were we'd throw it around as an idea and we didn't really we couldn't really think of much and then um a friend of mine and possibly a mutual friend of you guys called mark mason uh came up with to us with an idea for a podcast and it would basically be the Mark Mason show and he would have some of the elves in the background sort of rustling around and bringing him facts and stuff like that. It was a bit more like a radio show. Uh, and we, we thought it wouldn't quite work with what we were doing and, and we didn't really think that was quite the right thing. But what it really forced us to do was to sit down and go, okay, should we do a podcast? Should we try mm. and come up with something? And there was really at that time only four or five people in the office uh who could possibly do it um and four of us are on the podcast now and on top of that there was alex bell who was at university so we couldn't really he couldn't really commit his time to it and Anne miller who didn't really feel like she wanted to do it so the four people who did it were really the only ones <laughs> who were available uh and in actual fact it was strange because we in immediately it was obvious that we we did have this really good sort of um connection between the four of us and we we worked really well together and you know, we, we all come from very different backgrounds, different parts of the world. We have very different voices, which I think is really important. It's like, you know, it's not just like four um, Southern male voices. We, we all sound slightly different. It's really amazing how how it's grown and, and how, like you said before, we have our uh, 400 million listeners now and 
yeah we we couldn't believe it we we thought that it was just something we were doing for a bit of fun and then suddenly it took off and after a couple of weeks we were number one in the charts and we've been in the top 10 of the charts for eight years a, a couple of weeks yeah yeah i, I mean like, i knew it was successful but like i didn't know it was like that immediately successful well i suppose it was um helped by stephen fry tweeted about it mm. uh and the way the apple charts worked in those days i think slightly different now but you were very much helped by the fact that you were new uh, the Apple charts um, weighted you compared to previous weeks. So if you're on a real upward trajectory, then you're much easier to get to to the top. And that is still is true now, but it's slightly it's slightly different. Um, but yeah, we it was it was almost immediate. We were just we would go into the pub after a week, and we couldn't believe the figures. They were you know in the tens of thousands already, and we'd hardly even mentioned it. Mm. And I think personally, I still didn't believe it until we did our first tour and we started selling out rooms. And once we started selling out those rooms, then you could see there were actual people because on the internet, if numbers are going up, who knows if that's real, right? It's all, it's all bots. It's just people from Russia yeah. downloading it and storing exactly. it. Exactly. Nothing against Russians, of course. I, I mean, <laughs> I've been recognized on the Moscow underground by some of our fans. So we do have listeners in Moscow as well. But yeah, we, we you would see these tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands and then millions of people listening. And it was literally only when, when we actually saw them in real life that I believed that this actually was was getting so big and and really has now completely taken over everything almost yeah so that upward spiral continued as like the bbc sort of came knocking and said well you know you've got this podcast now so like do you want to reverse engineer this back into a tv show called no such thing as the news so but that came from a quite unusual source of funding yeah, it did. It's quite interesting because Chris and Rosie, um, Chris and Rosie Ramsey, who do uh, the podcast Shagged Married a Void, which is obviously a humongous podcast, they've just done a, a chat show. And they were, I, I'm pretty sure they were advertised as the first podcast to have been turned into a TV show, which we were quite surprised about because we had done it probably about 10 years before then. Mm. Um, but the truth was that ours was very different to theirs. So they, uh, very shiny floor, uh, really slick. I mean, those two are brilliantly funny. I really love them. But ours was um, commissioned by BBC News as opposed to comedy or entertainment. It was made in a club in Greenwich and made on... I don't know how much shoestrings are these days, but I'm not sure that even saying it was on a shoestring is fair because it was made with no money, with like literally we, what was amazing was that we wrote it, we produced, we performed on it. We also edited it ourselves. Like I, I've never heard of any other TV show doing that. I'm sure there are some, but I've never heard of anyone. So we would literally come off the stage and I would get the audio immediately. And in the taxi home, I would be editing the audio, which I would then send to Dan and Anna, who went directly to the um, offline edit and they would spend all night editing it. And then I would get up at seven o'clock the next morning and go in for the online edit and we would put it out the next evening which is, mm. I mean, it, it almost killed me. <laughs> but it was great fun and an amazing experience. But 
I mean, it, you can tell if you ever, if anyone goes on the internet and look, looks back at it, you can see that it was made very cheaply. But with all the things that QI does, we always think that it's the content that's the most important thing. And if you get the content right, people will, will like it and will enjoy it. And that's what happened with the podcast, which was a bit rough and ready to start off with. And we kind of hoped that would happen with news as well, although we only lasted two seasons. And uh, the last leg, which happened, which started about the same week as we did as has gone on to much bigger and better things. <laughs> mm. When you when you have a new commission and you start a new show, there's this idea, I think, that um, you might have one person sat in a bedroom who's come up with an idea and they kind of just, they take their idea and put it straight onto TV. But it's really unusual that, and you always have this group of people above you and a group of people above them who have their idea of what color this cushion should be or, you know, this needs to be two minutes longer, this segment or whatever. But it was so unusual I found that we really didn't have any of that and I thought I feel like we were quite blessed by that because it meant we could make the show that we wanted to make um, and I think if you look at a lot of the the most um, highly acclaimed shows or not most but a lot of the highly acclaimed shows in the last you know 10 or 20 years uh, a lot of them are made by people for the love of the show. Um, I, I put in mind of um, Inside Number Nine, for instance, uh, where I went to a talk for those guys and, and they were like, yeah, really, these days we can make the show that we really, really want to make. Uh, and the thing, the, the main thing I remember of that whole era of No Such Things as the News is that we were the first comedy show to do, um, to cover the Donald Trump election. Uh, when he became president, uh, because we recorded on the night of the election and we didn't know who was going to win. So we did, um, actually we did three versions. We did a version where Trump wins, a version where Hillary won and a version where it was like a tie and they had to, they were going to have weeks and weeks of, <laughs> of deliberations. Mm. Uh, and it, what the show was, it was four sections with four different facts. And so we had to redo the first fact for each th each of the three different things. Uh, and then, like I said, it was in the evening when we would do the the edit. And we started editing with the idea that Hillary would win because that was what everyone thought. And that's what the betting markets mm. were showing and, and everything. And then around 3 or 4 a.m., we had to realized that actually she wasn't going to win and it was going to be a tie and we were going to have to kind of do this weird halfway house uh. sort of show and then about six or seven a.m <laughs> it dawned on us no we're actually going to have to make a third show now <laughs> so somewhere there is a there's a semi-edited show of no such thing as the news where hillary won maybe you could send that to rachel maddow as a, as like, as a comfort blanket <laughs> so like, yeah. you can sort of watch that and sort of like pretend to live in this alternative universe it was so strange. So, sort of that complete the arc, if you like. You now, as a major part of you, I'm back in Bolton yeah. working as an accountant. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like. Yeah. By the way, when is when is that like uh, cost benefit analysis going to be on my desk? By the way, um, no, you're 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 now sort of effectively touring the world as, as like actually part of your job. So you're like, so what sort of places have you you been on tour? Well, we've been everywhere, really. Like, um, we've done the UK, obviously. We've played everywhere in the UK, um, apart from wherever you live. If you're a fan and you write to us and say, why have you not come to <laughs> Horwich or wherever, <laughs> which is what we get on every single tour. Um, but yeah, we've played the UK quite a few times. We've done a European tour, which was mostly Scandinavia, uh, and France and Germany and Belgium. 
Um, and what is funny about that is you, we're a comedy show, so you're always gauging the reaction of your audience. And, um, quite often in a few of these countries, we've come off stage and thought, Oh gosh, that was terrible. And only for our tour promoter to say, Oh no, it's, they, they really enjoyed it. It's just in X country. They don't laugh. (laughs) No, no, they they don't applaud. No, they're, they're, they're the kind of people who just sit there and enjoy the show. And you're like, Oh, really? Or, or are you just massaging our egos here? Um, so yeah, we played all that. Um, we've played in America. We've taught America and that involved something very strange, which was that our faces were on a billboard in Times Square, which has. I mean, just ridiculous. And there are some moments in your career when you just kind of look back and you're like, what was going on there? But uh, we were part of the New York Comedy Festival. Uh, we played Australia, New Zealand. Um, and yeah, I'd love to play some other places, to be honest. Uh, we're, we're always getting emails from people saying, why haven't you come to South Africa yet? Or why have oh, you not come yeah. to Japan yet? Or I suppose like, podcasting is the, the sort of ideal tool because you, you know how many people are listening in certain places. So you can target these tours to those, right, those places. 100%. So when people say to us, why have you not come to, uh, Essex, say, we can say, well, the reason is because our tour company get all of our data and they know exactly where you are when you're listening. And so they book the places where most of our listeners are. Uh, and if you look at our figures, um, London is by far our biggest city. Uh, but then the next two or three are all in Australia. Um, mm. QI is, QI as a TV show is really big in Australia. It's, um, it was once mentioned in the Australian Parliament. It's like, why can we not make more Australian shows and not have Stephen Bloody Fry <laughs> on the TV all the time? <laughs> uh, QI is really big and the podcast is, is pretty big over there as well. Um, when we played Australia, we, we were on, um, we were on a flight and there were people in front of us were listening to the show on their headphones and then they took her headphones off and we were sat behind them talking about something else and they said it was the strangest experience for them that they, they couldn't work out yeah exactly um so yeah we've we played all those places and and it's what i mean what a privilege to be able to do that and and to and the other thing about podcasts is it is global because it's just you shove it on the internet and it doesn't matter where in the world you are, you can pick it up. Well, within reason. So like what's what's the future? Is there any other sort of like medium or, or like project you'd like to do or Well, I don't know. I've I've still got QI to make. We do the podcast, we do the um books. Uh we're moving the podcast onto YouTube because YouTube have asked us if we would. So um mm. we're gonna be putting some clips up on there. Does that mean you have to sort of like worry about how you look now and like get dressed up for it? As you well know, David, I don't worry about how I look. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's for other people to worry about. It's like when we did the uh, No Such Thing as the News, we were, um, we were in this club, uh, and it was in the middle of the summer and it was roasting hot. <laughs> Uh, and it was just so, so hot. And it was funny because I had some sinus surgery two weeks ago. I've been, had a lot of swelling in my face and I managed to dig out my old ice packs that they bought me for no such thing as the news, <laughs> which I had to, just before we sat down on stage, I had to stuff them all behind my um, shirt at the back so that I wouldn't look like I was melting on stage. It didn't work, but you know, <laughs> that. So yeah, um, no, we won't worry too much about what we look like. I think, like I've said before, it's all about the content as far as as we're concerned and you do you want to mention this sort of sports thing that you're doing 
Yeah, I can do. Um, we, we've not really announced this, but, um, we're writing myself and Anna Tashinsky, uh, from the podcast are writing a, um, QI big bumper book of sports, uh, which will come out in autumn next year. We're halfway through writing it and our deadline is scarily close to finishing it off. Uh, we don't really know what it'll be called, but unlike a lot of the other QI books, which are like lists of facts, this is going to be a bit more written. It's going to be, uh, a bit more looking at the sociological side of sport and, but of course, doing what we always do with loads of silly stories about, you know, people walking for six days on end and pole vaulters getting electrocuted because their poles are made of aluminium. <laughs> <laughs> and people who winning the discus, even though they didn't know what a discus looked like and all that kind of stuff. So there'll be all sorts of amazing, fun stories in there. But it, yeah, it's going to be a bit more of a, a proper book. Well, that sounds great. And like, I'll, shall we give you a plug? So, like, so if you want to listen to James's podcast, it's very good. It's called No Such Thing as a Fish. And yeah. like, I'm, I'm sure the 12 people that listen to our podcast will all flood and, and listen to it if they're not already doing so. That's why I'm here. That's, yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's, it's all for PR. Exactly. Marvelous. Well, uh, it's been a real treat talking to you, James. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. You're going to come back for your show and tell item later. But for now, James Harkin, thank you very much for being on TV show and tell thanks very much for having me since the last time we've been on air itv have announced that they're bringing back big brother it's been on channel 4 and channel 5 and now they're giving it a go now the one thing about big brother is its iconic location the big brother house and of course the same could be said for another itv show love island now, Justin, I know this is a topic you're very hot on. So what is it about a show's location that makes it an integral part of the format? Well, formats are narratives and narratives are stories and stories take place somewhere. Um, and in a good story, that somewhere, that place, that location informs the story in some way. I think the challenge is often faced by set designers and location finders when a producer comes along to them and says, here's my show, now I need a place to deliver it. In a better world, in an ideal world, the idea itself comes with a way in which the, the narrative of the format is served by the place it's set in. So, for example, there's a rule in sitcoms which says that like, often the best sitcoms are ones where people are effectively thrown together and, and trapped in a situation that they can't get out of. Yes. Um, a classic way in which a format is informed by its place is when the place traps the people, as you say. So that might be an island, for example. In, you know, We have loads and loads of formats where you know, everyone is on an island. Often it's not an island, it's a peninsula or something more useful for trucking in equipment. <laughs> truthfully but it looks like an island and it functions love peninsula you might have just <laughs> developed bbc 3s new hot format there justin <laughs> exactly or bear grills the the the, uh, the peninsula romance isthmus <laughs> <laughs> but you know another example is the bloody game as a recent korean format which is sort of based on the movie parasite which is where everybody is trapped inside a building the difference is that the contestants start in the wealthy part of the building, uh, living in a very nice apartment. And when they get eliminated, what the rest of the people don't know is that the eliminated people are now living in the basement. Right. I think Dragon's Den is a good example, really. And when the show was picked up by the BBC and turned into Dragon's Den, 
Um, the whole vibe of it was very industrial. So the opening titles were the, the old mills of Manchester. Um, and the, the, uh, the set, you know, was built into an old warehouse and I think later a furniture depository and, and so on. But it was very much to tied into the feeling of the industrial revolution. So there was very much a sense that this wasn't the dragon's lair. This was the dragons kind of visiting your startup place and deciding as the big barons whether we're going to give you money or not. Mm-hmm. So that whole vibe was, was very powerful and has really kind of stayed in the titles and stayed in the set for for years and years and years. Even though, isn't it now like a studio that's on one floor and the lift's all fake and all that kind of Absolutely, thing? Absolutely, <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, that's all that's all gone for, for, for commercial reasons. But but the legacy of the of the of the relevance and how the place affects the story. If you take the American re, the American version of Dragon Sen, it's called Shark Tank. And it has a very, very different feel. It's much more uh, apprentice-like in a way in that the entrepreneurs visit the sharks at their sort of penthouse offices, you know, in the, in the middle of the, the city. And they're all very glamorous and rich. And when they walk in, instead of standing in a lift, they go down a corridor with shark tanks on either side. So that the rumor is, the story is that when these, when this was originally designed, the plan was that the sharks would be in a, like a donut shaped tank. So they would be circling. (laughs) Metaphor, metaphor, metaphor. (laughs) I know. Metaphor, metaphor. They'd be circling throughout until somebody pointed out that this would be a nightmare for continuity. <laughs> to be safe. Oh, sorry, shot, shot two, love. Sorry, can we, can we go back to first positions, please? You know, Yeah, that basking shot wasn't there before. <laughs> like, so, so, okay, so it wasn't the fact that there are literally sharks and thousands and thousands of tons of water uh, in, in the studio. It was the fact of continuity. Absolutely, okay. that's, the, that's the story anyway. So if anyone out there can verify that story, I'd be delighted <laughs> but again you know it's it's just very interesting how again the the, the story reflects the culture that the setting reflects the culture and all of that is feeds into what is essentially a business transaction i think we had this issue of the show i was working on mm. uh, where the families were invited to play games that were in a sense also experiments so we had a choice of three things that we could do we could either find a really expensive, glamorous-looking location that really was some kind of I don't know, neurological testing center, take over that place and, and make it our space. We could also get them to walk up to a fancy-looking front door that was ostensibly such an institution, but then actually we, we run the real games in a studio, effectively, but dress it a bit like Dragon's Den as if it was somewhere else. Or thirdly, we could just run the entire thing in a studio. And we ended up doing the first thing. And the first thing ended up being a disused Pfizer factory where they used to make Viagra or (laughs) they they invented it there anyway. And, uh, you know, as you might understand, a sort of a nineties disused laboratory in Kent doesn't in I mean, I'm, I'm selling it as if it's really glamorous, Justin, but like, it, really, <laughs> it really wasn't all that great. Um, and so what we really should have done is we should have just shot the whole thing as a studio because effectively yeah. it was 
Well, I think that's an interesting point when you've got that kind of mixed messaging, really, because you know, there's a whole story that you say you tell with a lab and there's a whole story that you tell with a game show setting. Um, and when you try to mix them up, it can be, it can become very difficult. I, I was involved with a Chinese dating show called Mum Mate Computer Date, uh, which is a, it was a good show basically where a singleton has to choose between three possible suitors and, and one's been chosen by her mum and one's been chosen by a mate and one's been chosen by a computer. And she has to decide which one it is, Mm -hmm. which was fine. When they came to the set, it was very difficult because the brief was basically romantic tech. (laughs) Right. I've had some emails about that (laughs) in my spam folder, but yes. (laughs) But, you know, you're trying to do a dating show, but they really wanted it to be kind of high tech computer, da, 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 da. And, you know, romantic is red and pink and tech is steel and blue you know and you've got soft furnishings and you've got hard furnishings and you know the the eventual result was a very very high to high tech looking set with a massive chandelier in the middle which you know which just didn't work but it was again that that mixed messaging you compare this to something like um like the repair shop for example I think the the repair shop is a is a wonderful use of place and location because actually this is not a repair shop. You know, it's a lovely barn in Sussex is what it is, but it's been dressed and designed in such a way that it feels like the completely natural place for all of these craftsmen to be in. Um, it's nostalgic. It's warm. The show was originally a daytime show long before it made made it to prime time. So it had this kind of, you know, again, day feel to it. And it had seasons and it had an ar- because it was a place that you came to, you brought things to. So everything about the repair shop location feeds the story, makes the story better. There's nothing you do in that format that couldn't be done in a studio because all of those people and all of that equipment and all of those tools were imported. Mm. But it serves the format, it serves the atmosphere, it serves everything brilliantly. And if our accountants are watching, the reason why we hire the top floor of the Shard for recording this podcast is for tax purposes. (laughs) That's the reason for our choice of location. Well, it's also because it's got the helipad that I need. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to get to the home counties. Well, I can just, I just, I just get the number seventy-three bus. <laughs> I wave. I always wave at the bus. <laughs> now, if you're not familiar with the title of this podcast, we call it TV Show and Tell because we ask our guests to show and tell us an object, either real or metaphorical that has perhaps inspired their career, or just has a neat or funny anecdote associated with it. So it's James Harkins' turn to show and tell us something to do with his career. And now we're back with QI's Director of Research and star of the No Such Thing as a Fish podcast, James Harkin, and he's got something to show and tell us. And I believe you have got something from your travels to show us. I have. So um, this is the travels relating to No Such Thing as a Fish. Uh, I'm not really one for keeping stuff um, from our from the shows and the things that I do. Um, but Paulina, my wife, um, who comes to all the shows, she often collects the tickets 
uh, that we that we get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've got a load of tickets from some of the shows that we've done. So I have a ticket from the Hammersmith Apollo when we played there, and I played guitar on stage at the Hammersmith Apollo, which I, I'm really <laughs> proud of doing. Um, I did play Baby Shark, but it's you know it's a start. <laughs> I got some stuff from um, from New York. There, I've got something from the Heinz Oberhummer Award, which we were given in in Vienna. That was for science communication, uh, and they gave us a little prize, which is this. Um, it's a jar of llama droppings. Of course. Uh, alpaca droppings i do beg your pardon they're alpaca droppings yeah i I didn't think that Uh, they were the wrong shape for llama droppings yeah that was my first thought as soon as i said i just saw two faces looking back at me going come on james i mean i would have believed it if you said they were vicuña droppings but they're definitely not llama droppings no they're alpaca droppings and then the other thing i have is my ticket from the sydney opera house which is probably the the most iconic oh it's definitely the most iconic place we played uh, we played, yeah, we sold out the Sydney Opera House, uh, which was, again, one of those moments where you're just, you you kind of look and think, what is going on? You, you, you always try and make a snapshot of that moment and think, this is so stupid what's happening to a, a guy who was... 20 years ago was just working as an accountant in in Eccles that you really need to step back and think what's going on it's like um the only other the other times like when we won a national television award and I got up on stage for that at the O2 and it's like what is got this is stupid what is going on and when I was chicken on QI there was a there was an episode where I had to dance around as a giant chicken and people threw things at me and that was another thing where you just look at your career and you think, how, how is this happening? Why is it happening? Why is it happening to me? This is so stupid. I'm in the wrong place. Imposter syndrome alerts going off everywhere. <laughs> uh, but with the Sydney one, it was quite fun. I had one of, I try not to tell people what I do for a living when strangers ask me because they tend to ask a lot more questions. <laughs> I'm sure you <laughs> can both uh, understand that. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, for instance, I was once, um, the barbers when i was first doing qi and someone said oh uh, the barber said oh what do you do for a living and i stupidly said that i work for qi and he was so interested in telling me all of his facts that he completely disregarded the fact that he was trimming my sideburns (laughs) they ended up about three centimeters above the top of my ears i was like from then on i'm never gonna say that again but we were in sydney and and they put us up in a place out of town because when you're on tour sometimes you need to stay in a place where you've got like washing facilities and all that kind of stuff so we're a bit out of town and we had to get a taxi in and the taxi driver picked us up and he said oh where are you going to and we said oh we're going to the sydney opera house and he's like oh why are you going there i was like oh yeah we're going for a show we're going for a show and he said oh who's playing and i just said i am and I never really hated myself as much as I did at that moment. <laughs> I just thought, come on, James, have a word with yourself. This is, this is not right. But it was still, you know, I thought it was a pretty fun moment. But secretly, your former self in a back room at Evan Eccles accounting porter cabin is, is secretly rather proud of, uh, of what, what you managed to achieve in, in quite a short time. So. Well, I would hope so. There we go. Well, and so the arc is complete. Um, that's marvelous. Well, James, thanks so much for bringing you both, both the, the droppings and no, no correctly identified <laughs> and your tickets to TV show and tell. Thank you very much for having me again.
and it's time to play Fake or Format, our little parlour game where we have to separate fact from fiction. This time Justin has two programme synopses that he's going to read out, but one of them he's made up and the other one is an actual real show. And I know you've been working on these for months, so... <laughs> right. Minutes. Okay, so both of these formats involve looking. Mm. Okay, so the first one is called Look at Me. It's an Italian format, and it involves a troupe of comedians who are sent into a social situation, and their objective is to, to try and attract the most attention. Okay. And the production uses eye-tracking technology, which enables them to measure who people are looking at and for how long. Wow. So the, the winner each week is the person who the most people spent the most of time looking at. So as they're trying to outdo do each other, they resort to more and more extreme tactics. So that's look at, look at me, exclamation mark. The second one is called You're in the Picture. And this involves a large cutout scene, a life-size illustration like you used to have at the seaside of a famous scene, or it might be a song lyric or something like that. And it's got holes cut out in it. And celebrities stick their heads through it, and then they ask the host questions to try and figure out what they are in the scene of. Okay? So you know, if they're able to... So it's kind of yes-no questions, basically. So that's you're in the picture, and the other one is called Look at Me. Which is the fake and which is the format? Wow. That's a really tricky one. I think I have seen a variation of the second one on a show, and it's I can't exactly remember the title of it because there's been so many shows ending Apple. I think it's called Guessable. It's a Dave format, and it's a sort of... Mm, so that's sort of vaguely familiar. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's. it could also be its own format. The first one sounds interesting, but like I don't know how you just don't stop people from ripping off their clothes off at the very first mention of the, whatever the task is. And also the technology involved must be pretty advanced to track that many eyes. I mean, I've seen something similar on a Japanese thing where they've, they've sort of it was, I have to say it was quite sexist because they got some sort of like curvy model to sort of go and do something embarrassing. And then like all these men would leer at her and they counted how long that they would look at her. Um, I don't know if that was a recent thing or an old thing. Anyway, mm. this is a frustrating one because I think the first one's probably the better format, but I also <laughs> think it's the, it's probably the fake one. So I'm going to say, look at me is the, is the fake. And you are correct. So I take that oh. as a, I take that as a bit of a compliment since that's, yeah. since the better one is the one that I made up. But yeah, so that's not true. You're in the picture was a format back in 1961. It's quite famous or infamous actually, because it only ran for two episodes. Right. And the first episode was so bad and was so poorly received that when it came to the second episode and people tuned in for it, instead of finding the celebrity panel and everything else, there was just the host sitting in a chair, Jackie Gleason, who then spent the next half an hour apologizing <laughs> how bad the previous episode was. Um, and ironically, the second episode got better reviews than the first episode. Uh, so it's gone down in history as, as possibly the the worst game show in american television history so there we go so well done you got it right Whew, thanks Lee. it's been a while since i've scored one i think 
And that's all we have for you this time. If you'd like to contact the program, you can tweet us at TV Show Podcast, or you can email us via the address contact at tvshowandtell.com. But until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggie. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs>